1083. We're in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, a Greek church um, subsumed in Greek culture. Uh, what they didn't know about um, licentiousness, about uh, their rights. We'll see it from the passage we're going to read from, chapter 6 and verse 12. Uh, and this is part of a correspondence. We've got two letters here, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. It's thought that there were a number of letters kind of toing and throwing uh, between Paul and the church in Corinth. And, and here he's, he's kind of picking up on a number of um, issues. You'll see the uh, chapter 7 it says now for the matters you wrote about he, he's picking up on points they want to make and so um, you'll see in verse 12 here the bit in inverted commas it's, it's uh, quoting them so he's quoting them and then wanting to address uh, and he's talking here really about I guess the body in general and um, sex in particular and that is our topic for tonight I have a right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. A word of prayer. Father, we sang just a few moments ago, you're so good. You're so good to us. Father, we sang, we are loved by you. We stand in that truth today, this evening, now, Lord. Held by you. Loved by you. And so we dedicate ourselves to sit under your teaching, to hear what you have to say through us in scripture and particularly in this whole area of sex and our sexuality. Father, teach us, guide us, where necessary, provoke and convict us in order that we might walk more freely in your truth. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen, amen. Um, welcome. If you're new here, there are a few hands. I, I'm Tim. I'm the vicar here. You've picked uh, an amazing night to come and uh, be with us. We're on a little mini-series looking at sex. 
this week I'm going to be, what I want to do is kind of just lay out what I understand to be the biblical foundation for sex. It'll be, in that sense, sort of a little bit objective. Um, and then next week I'm going to be joined by Joe, my wife, and we're going to be picking up on a number of the questions that we asked, invited people to put in this box here, those questions ahead of time on, on the whole topic of sex. So Joe and I will be there. And we, what we're going to do is really just treat that like a Q&A, question and answer. So that'll be a little bit more practical, uh, kind of really working through the outworkings of that. There'll be a great opportunity next week for Joe to say, um, last week when Tim said this, what he really meant was, uh, so all the sort of correctives will, will come out. Um, just before we dive in, I probably tell, we, let's tell a joke, because that'll sort of help to break the ice. Um, so there was a local vicar, and um, he was invited by um, the head teacher of the nearby school to go and speak to the pupils on sex. And he said, oh, no, I'd be delighted to, I'd love to. And so he put the date in the diary, and as he was writing it, he just remembered that his wife, the dear vicar's wife, was prone to just leaf through his diary and check what he was up to, you know, behind his back. So he thought, well, I, I'm not sure I wanted to know what I'm doing here. So what he did was he wrote in the entry, go and speak to the local school on sailing. So the, uh, the event came, and he spoke on the topic he was asked to speak on, well received, and, uh, and that was that. Until maybe two or three days later, when the head teacher bumped into the vicar's wife uh, in the queue in Tesco's, and she said, oh, we did so enjoy your husband coming to speak to our pupils. He was so good. Can't believe how well he handled the topic, and he answered all their questions at the end. And the vicar's wife said, oh, I've got to tell you, I'm utterly gobsmacked. I have absolutely no idea what he thinks he knows about the subject. He's only done it twice. The first time he was physically sick, and the second time his hat blew off. Now, what I've just done there is a rhetorical device. Um, I've said sex a few times, which has just sort of got that out there, you know, the vicar saying sex from the front in church. But also, I've been sort of gauging your laughter there, because, you see, um, if I told that joke, it's not, it's, it's, it's a sort of, okay, it's quite a funny joke, and if you, if you basically go on, <laughs> yeah, get on with it, come on, then I, okay, let's dive in. But if there's, <laughs> uproarious laughter, nervous squirming, then I know that we've got to sort of just, you know, play it by ear a little bit. So that was about sort of, that was about a half and half, I reckon. What's the vicar going to say next? Um, a few caveats, a few caveats. First of all, thank you so much for those of you, I asked on the weekend away, so those of you on the weekend away who uh, put some questions in the box, those were really, really helpful questions. They, they were really good thoughtful, provocative questions and uh, have really got me and Joe uh, thinking. And so we want to honour that and that's why I think next week rather than a talk. We just want to tackle as many of those questions and begin and answer. I, I don't say we have all the answers um, or we've got all the knowledge or all the experience or whatever, but just to begin um, to answer them uh, and hopefully lay a foundation for us to continue some maybe crucial conversations in the next few days and weeks as a church as we grow and mature together.
The second thing to say is I'm not standing here as a paragon of virtue, as a sexual expert. Uh, I am as prone to, and by the way, as human beings, all of us will be prone to and, and aware of the, the sort of temptation there is in the whole area of, of uh, sort of sexuality, sex, and so on. So, um, and I'm, I'm kind of, I know I'm standing up here looking at you, but in a sense I want to be standing or sitting with you as we look at this together. And I want to just pick up on one or two, two questions early on. Um, uh, so the, the sort of, I grouped some of the questions together to get a sort of feel for what uh, you were wrestling with and wanting to know. And uh, one little group, one section of questions is just stating the obvious, really, that the Bible doesn't seem to say much about sex. Um, you know, it, it, these are, there are loads and loads of, look at all these pages here, and yet, you know, trying to find out what, where is the sort of the blueprint, where's the framework, where's the understanding on on uh, sex, mm. it doesn't seem to be too prevalent. And, and those bits that we pick up on, and including maybe this passage here that I've read today, it, it would appear that the Bible disapproves of sex. And one question summed it up, it just said, what's the point of sex? I thought, that's, that's a really good question, I don't think I've ever thought of that. What's the point of sex? What is the definition of sex according to the Bible? So if I may, I, I, want, to, I want to start there. Because there is this notion that sort of we came up with the idea of sex, sort of behind God's back, um, you know, when he wasn't looking. It was sort of our idea. It's almost as if, you know, Adam and Eve were behind the bike shed. And Adam goes, hey, Eve, touch that. <laughs> and so they, and it's like God. It's like, it's like God says, oh, you guys are all right. If you must, go on then, get on with it. So it's sort of, he's reluctantly... But actually, maybe it helps if we flick back to Genesis chapter 1. Tell me, just uh, Genesis 1. There are two, uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There are two accounts of creation, and they kind of complement each other. And Genesis 1, verse 27. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the, the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. There was evening, morning and the sixth day. Genesis 1 is a kind of wide-angled lens on creation, on God's intention in creation. And God creates the heavens and the earth and everything within it. And he creates human beings in his image. He gives them bodies. And they are male and female. They complement each other. In that sort of, uh, it, it's the, it's, it creates a dynamic and profound union. And the strength of the union is in the difference. And the point, it seems to me, you notice that God says God blesses them. He blesses that. This is good. And then he says, go and fill the earth. Go forth. Go and be fruitful. In other words, reproduce. Have sex. It's part of God's intention. God is, uh, sex is God's idea. It's his desire that we should enjoy sex as part of the mandate to fill the earth. To reproduce. So that, if you like, is the Genesis 1, the, the, the sort of zoom, uh, the um, wide-angle lens 
perspective on creation. Genesis 2 is like the zoom lens. We zoom in specifically on Adam and Eve. Just uh, look with me. At, uh, let's go from verse um, 18 of Genesis 2. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Genesis 1, the kind of wide-angled lens of creation. Genesis 2 here, a complementary text, a kind of zooming in on our understanding of how we are meant to live and work and enjoy each other together. And you notice how this helper suitable, verse 20, the suitable helper for Adam is both like him, this is bone of my bones, verse 23, and flesh of my flesh. She's exactly like him and she's also opposite to him. She's different from him. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. And their difference allows for this strength of union. It's, it's precisely at their difference, the physicality of their difference, in sexual union, that their union is made so strong and profound. And it's interesting that the writer goes on to say, verse 24, chapter 2, for this reason, a man... So he's not now talking about Adam or Eve, he's talking more generally. He's talking down the generations. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. One of the questions picked up on that phrase, one flesh. What, is, what does that mean? What's it understood to mean? And, and uh, I think the question was coming from the fact, is, is, that, is the Bible talking about sex? Well, yes, it is. But so much more. So much more. This is God's vision for us as human beings within the realm of sex and what sex leads to. Because the word there for uh, one is the same word that's used to describe God in the, uh, the, uh, the Shema. It's a kind of, uh, it was a kind of recurring prayer of the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Ehad is the name, uh, is the word. And Ehad means, it, it means a sort of complete wholeness, a complete integration, a complete togetherness. And just as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are totally united together, the Lord your God is one, so when man and woman come together in sexual union, there is that oneness, one flesh. And God designed that so to be. He created that for us to enjoy. God's intention is that through the gift of sexual union, we, men and women, should enjoy deep, deep union with one another. Not just physical closeness, but a, an emotional 
closeness, oneness, a psychological oneness, a kind of intellectual oneness. We connect at a deep, deep level. That's God's desire for us. His purpose is that sex is like a covenant glue. It strengthens that one flesh bond. And we can see that the power of that sexual bond when we recognize just how painful it is when a sexual relationship breaks up. It's because the bond has worked so well that the breakup is so painful. Well, how come then, another question or two, how come the Bible has so little to say about sort of going out uh, and, and dating, how we should conduct our relationships within what's, let's face it, a sort of sex-saturated culture? Uh, and, and how come the Bible has not much to say about sex per se? And what you've talked about there is more sort of relationship and, and, and one flesh in, in, in its widest sense. Well, just quickly to tackle that question and to lead into what I want to say next, um, the Bible is just written in uh, for a people, by a people, in a slightly different culture from our own. Actually, ours is the slightly abnormal culture, where uh, as individuals we become sexually mature in our sort of teenage years, but culturally we don't tend to uh, form um, uh, monogamous relationships, marriage, uh, until much later. There's this sort of gap between, let's say, 11, 12, 13, and let's say 25, 26 plus when the Bible doesn't really know what to say of, of that gap that we've created in, in the sort of recent Western world. What happened in Bible times was you were betrothed. Your parents decided who you were going to marry. Do you remember Mary and Joseph in the Jesus story? They were betrothed to each other when, before they were sexually active, it, it, intending that they marry as soon as they were. And betrothal was very common. So you, you kind of, the whole dating, why doesn't the Bible say anything about dating? Well, because it it's a phenomenon that didn't really exist. The Bible has a whole lot of other things to say that we can take and apply to dating. So it's not as if the Bible hasn't got stuff to say, but not on dating per se. It was just how it was. You, you, know, you, were, uh, you had a little baby boy, let's say, toddling around, and you see nice Mr. and Mrs. Jones over there, and uh, oh, look, they've got a little toddler girl. How convenient. <laughs> And so you come into discussion, and that's how it was. But the Bible has a fair amount of things to say about the physical activity of sex. Proverbs 5.18, don't, don't need to turn to it unless, unless you really want to. But he's talking about a man there, and he says, May you enjoy the wife of your youth. May her breasts satisfy you. Is that the... Oh, we haven't got that bit up. That much is verse 19, is it? <laughs> Here we are. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. And uh, we, 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 this is an English translation, and often we're sort of a little bit demure on that. Um, the word satisfy, if you kind of do the, the study on it, it, it means a little bit more than that. It's God's desire that we should really enjoy the physicality of our sex and sexual lives. What about the Song of Songs? Do you, do you know? Have you? Do you know that? Just after the Psalms, amazing. Uh, it's it's kind of highly erotic, highly sensual love poem. A lover to his beloved, and uh, there there are three 
Hebrew words that are used for love. There's dowd, which is erotic love. There's raya, which is the kind of deep friendship love, the kind of soul tie, if you like. And then there's ahava, the Hebrew word for the, the kind of determination, the will to love. And all three of those words, the kind of erotic love, the friendship, and the, the kind of will, the determination, the, the faithfulness, are sewn into this erotic, this sensual love poem. So the Bible talks much of sex and sensuality. What about Hosea? The prophet Hosea, he's encouraged, uh, it's kind of a really tough command of the Lord, to go and um, marry a prostitute. Why? so that he can understand what it feels like to be spurned as a lover because that's how God feels towards his people and there's a theme that, that begins to emerge here in scripture as we look at how God deals with sex and the physicality of relationships on a human level he's wanting to point to something beyond the subject themselves Many interpreters will say that the Song of Songs is, is a love poem, but really it's not about a man and a woman. It's a love poem depicting God's longing for us, his people, using quite unequivocal, quite you know, out there language, idioms, metaphors. God wooing us, God longing for us, God, God wanting to be overwhelmed by us and we for him. That's why when in the letter to the Ephesians we looked at last, uh, last term, and uh, the bit on husbands and wives in, in chapter 5, and do you remember Paul says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, in this one flesh coming together, in this profound union, sex as part of that, the glue of that, it's not an end in itself. It's a means to a greater end. There's something through the, the, the kind of romantic attachments and sexual love that points to something even greater than sex itself. The Bible teaches that sex is really only a signpost to a greater arousal, a greater fulfilling, a greater sense of satisfaction, a deeper sense of being known, an extraordinary intimacy that of the intimacy of God himself, of being won by him, wooed by him, held by him, challenged by him, loved by him, shaped by him, matured by him. The orgasm in sex is only meant to echo the thrill, the sheer ecstatic thrill of knowing what it is to have God's life-giving, life-bearing fruit working in and through you to his praise and glory. That is the Bible vision of sex. We often settle for so much less. The Christian call to sex could not be higher to talk of it, to speak of it, to champion it. But the fall the fall from grace has sullied so much of that. Did you, did you notice in that reading, it's a phrase that it struck me for quite some time. Uh, Adam and Eve, they were naked but felt no shame. That, that's the ideal. 
that we can feel no shame about our naked bodies because they are a tool for rejoicing in God. Look how amazing God is, that we can share this sexual intimacy, but this isn't it. This is just the foretaste. The real thing is to come, and we can experience it now by His Spirit. No shame in our nakedness. But the fall has, has teased out, if you like, the, the design of God and our desire. And so we've subverted our desire so that we've objectified one another. We've sought to grab sex as something to be consumed rather than the gift that we look to use wisely with one another. We grab what we can take rather than giving. And so we live in a, in a world that, yeah, it's saturated by sex, but it's got its values so distorted and disordered and one of the ways in which we can reclaim what God longs for us in the whole area of sex is to recognize how far we've fallen and how far he's calling us back. C.S. Lewis, um, just famous in one of his writings, he uh, illustrated this, uh, just how disordered we've become in terms of our sexual appetite how it's become sort of turned in on itself. And uh, he gave the example of, um, you know, if you go to sort of a, a freshers' uh, university, you go to a hall of residence, and you just go around all the rooms, and look at the posters on the walls of particularly the guys, I guess, girls as well, but it's probably the guys, and um, they're these big, glossy A1, A2 posters, fill a whole wall. And uh, these guys going, hey, have you seen what Bill's got in his wall? Have you seen the poster? And there, seductively, almost dribbling off the page, is this incredibly well-positioned, tantalizing, teasing hot dog. <laughs> Food. And the guy's got, oh, hey, now have you seen what Ted's got in his study? Yeah, there's a picture of a hamburger. Look at the tomato ketchup just dribbling off that meat and the sizzling chihuahua. Or he says, what about you imagine you go to a club and there's ambient music and the lights are low and there's, a, there's all sorts of lights that are focused on the stage. And there on the stage, in the lights, there's sort of the music throbbing and the kind of lights are low. And layer by layer by layer are peeled away until revealed a leg of lamb. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis says, what conclusion would you draw about that culture's appetite for food? If, if they spend all their time looking at food, you conclude, well, they must be really hungry. If all they do is look at food and gawp at food, they must be really hungry. You say, no, 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 because the culture's saying they can eat as much as they like. You can have as much food as you like. Well, if they are eating as much as they like and still obsessed with gawping at food, then there must be something wrong with their appetite for food. Something is disordered. And that's the culture in which we live. God has ordained that sex should arouse in us a longing to transcend our sin pattern world a longing for heaven itself. That's his ultimate desire for sex. So it's a bit like um, 
and you know, there's a sort of fanar fanar uh, thing coming up here, isn't there, with this illustration? But it's a bit like God has made us like a plug, and the plug is meant to fit into a socket. I've got a socket down there. And of course, an exact point of difference is where it fits. And that's when the power comes in, when a socket fits into, the plug fits into the socket. But, but sex is so much more than just a plug in a socket. Here's another plug, which I put into the socket. And the point of the plug in the socket is so the light comes on. The point of our sex is that we enjoy it in order to point to God and his wonder at creation, his marvel at the way in which he's designed us to become one flesh, with all that that means. So let's get to 1 Corinthians 6. Because here we are in a rights culture of its own. First century Corinth. I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial, Paul replies. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And Paul is basically, he's, he's hearing their arguments, yeah, yeah, you can do what you like, you can live how you want, but maybe not everything is beneficial. You can, let's take the appetite, uh, sort of physical appetite for food, yeah, you can, you can eat pizza after pizza after pizza to the exclusion of anything else. You can, but it, it's not that beneficial to your body. I have a right to do anything. Yeah, but you, you ought not to be mastered by anything. The trouble with the good thing is when we make it a God thing, when it becomes an idol that consumes us. So Paul is in line with the Bible's teaching on a, on a third way. Sex as a pointer to all God's goodness for us. And so he says, verse 15, just over the page, um, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? We're, we're joined, we're one flesh with him in Christ by the Spirit. We're, if you like, married to him. We are his bride, the bride of Christ. So if we're the bride of Christ, joined with him in that one flesh, that, that emotional, psychological, mental, moral well-being and connectedness, how can we then go and attempt to connect with a prostitute? How can we release sexual drive with a prostitute without any of those other drives, any of those other vulnerabilities matching up? What are we thinking, Paul says? How are you understanding sex? He goes on to elaborate. Flee, verse 18, from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Now what does he mean here? Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins, Paul says, uh, people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. One of the questions was, is, 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 what's this big hang-up with sexual immorality with sexual sin you know if we sin isn't it like any other sin well in one sense yes it is it, in one sense it's no better or worse than any other sin sin is sin it's falling short of the glory of God and whether it's greed or whether it's pride or whether it's envy or whether it's in the whole area of, of sexual sin then it's all one and the same in that sense so what does Paul mean here 
all other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. And here's the thing I've been trying to show by, by a sort of positive definition in what I've said so far, but here now let's work it negatively. Sin is so close, sorry, sex is so close to the centre of who we are. Our sexual drive, our sexual longings, and all the things that are attached around the, the, the kind of sexual drive, the sexual libido, they're so close to the centre of who we are, they are like no other appetite. Again, let's, let's take, you know, in a, uh, after this service we'll sort of celebrate here, maybe drift off to the, to the pub across the way, is uh, what we typically do. You know, it'd be, it would be a bit unusual if, um, if someone just took a pint of beer and um, had a little sip and... Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you do, it's just a sort of measured... It's just we drink a pint of beer and you sort of have a pint, maybe another pint, and you just... It's nice, it's steady. It's, it's an inanimate object. It's, it's, it's liquid. But Joe and I, for those of you who don't know, I've uh, been married to Joe for coming up 24 years. I'm sitting with Joe at home, just have my arm over her shoulder. She's, uh, we're just cuddling together and she leans in and we have a kiss and maybe another kiss and... Ah, it's different. It's different from any other appetite. It's because I'm engaging with another sexual being. A, a, a plate of cakes, they're inanimate objects. They, 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 I feel the temptation, oh, I love a cake, another one, but... <laughs> Maybe a third. <laughs> but it's not the same. It doesn't have that impact on who I am. Because, because God has ordained that, that sex connects me with the true reality of who he's created me to be, in a way that a cake or a glass of beer or something doesn't. It's not like any other appetite. Sex releases a drive. And here's where we need to take it. Here's where Paul says, flee particularly from sexual immorality. Because sex releases a physical drive in us. We all recognize that. We recognize the, the pull of it, the temptation of it, the attraction in different ways. And, and Paul knows that if we, if we release that sexual drive, if we, if we give it play, without at the same time releasing the other drives and, and, and sort of necessities within relationship building. The, the drive or the necessity for emotional disclosure, for honesty, for trust.